Well, good morning. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we ask this morning as we see this glorious picture of your church, what you have made us to be, we ask, please, that you would uh, challenge each one of us wherever we find ourselves. Teach us of the unity that you have purchased and then the diversity that we need to show. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been gifted so much. We've seen it over the last few weeks as we've delved into these first three chapters in Ephesians. I mean, think all the way back to chapter 1, if you can. What was it, five weeks ago, six weeks ago? Right, and we read, we read these words in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Every spiritual blessing possible has been given to us. Uh, in Christ, we have all of God's promises fulfilled. In Jesus, we receive an inheritance, which is an astonishing thing, an inheritance from God himself. We've been gifted the divine among us as the Spirit indwells each one of us. We saw last week the very power of God is now at work for us. Chapter 3 and verse 20, to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory. We have been gifted so much such that the life of the church is full of things that we couldn't even imagine or comprehend. Things that are in many ways unexplainable but for the power of God. Tyrants are humbled. The oppressed are released. Bitterness is turned to honey. Sin is properly forgiven and dealt with. Generational wounds are healed. Those who were once dead sinners now glory in the worship of the ever-living God. I mean, this, this sort of transformation, it doesn't happen naturally. In God, we now have peace. Peace, peace. Spirit has been poured out. We now have deep and abiding hope. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been gifted so much. Such that we now are one body, united, fighting, contending together, striving to grow into the full measure of the stature of Christ. This isn't a dream. This isn't a sort of a, a one day we vaguely hope that maybe God might start doing this among us. This is the reality of God at work in us now. Individually. I tell you, this is true for you if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus. And corporately, for us as a church, for us as the body together, the grace of God poured out that results in a different way of living. We've got to get that order right. It really matters as we're about to head on into the next three chapters. The grace of God poured out, the generosity of God that saves us and therefore produces a different way of living, holy, sanctified, his life. You get those back to front, you end up with, well, not Christianity. If you think your works can save, God saves. Now, Ephesians is a really neat book. 
because it divides so clearly. Chapters 1 and th- one to 3 are the theology. They're the why. They, they spell out these blessings. If you've missed it, go back and listen again or go back and read and spend some time in it. It sets the groundwork that teaches us of what God has done for Jesus and in Jesus has done for us. And then chapters 4 to 6 tell you, the, well, what are you going to go and do as a result of it? How are you going to live? In one sense, these next three or four sermons are the application for the last five or six sermons. What are we to do? How is it that we're going to take the invisible, in some ways, the blessings that God has purchased for his body, the church, and make them visible? Do you remember that verse we read last week in chapter 3 and verse 10, right? The the grace that has been poured out in verse 10 of chapter 3, so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. God is using us to display his character. If you like, the, the summary of the last couple of weeks is this is who you are. So now, live it. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be somebody who says one thing and does another. I've got to tell you, I I was really struck by today's passage. I I think it's, uh, I found a hole in my theology as uh, as I studied it, so we'll we'll see where we end up. And uh, I would be astonished if you leave today unchanged, unchallenged. Well, how are we going to live it out? How is it that we are going to take all of these giftings from God, all this blessing, all of his generosity to us and live individually and together in a way that shows who God is? Well, he says the first thing we have to remember is that we are united, so be united. Notice it's not become united, he has already joined us into one, but because he has joined us, live as one. Have a look with me, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. Right, here it is. This is how you are to live. The calling is a great one. I mean, the calling is the astonishing thing that we've seen the last three chapters. Well, how do we do it? Verse 2, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called, one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. How are we going to live it out? Well, we're going to live it out by striving to maintain this unity. Look again at verse 3. Making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. It's one of those sentences that sounds lovely, right? Wow, that's such good words, unity of the spirit, bond of peace. And then you start thinking about what does that mean? And and you're kind of left scratching your head a little bit, right? What, What is the unity of the spirit? What's the bond of peace? How do we do this thing? What is this thing? Now, the bond of peace, I take it, is referring back to chapter three. The dividing wall broken down between Jew and Gentile. There is no longer a separation in how you come to God. There is one path. Why? Because there's one God. There is only one divine truth. There's only one baptism. There's only one salvation. There's only one Jesus. You don't find multiple paths. The bond of peace is that which Jesus has brought for us, all of God's children together, 
And we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, it's a basic reality in these verses that there is only one divine truth. That has a couple of implications, doesn't it? I mean, if we're within the church, if you and I and you and the person next to you belong to Christ, then we are one. Whatever division we might feel with them, whatever difference we might have, pales in comparison to that basic truth. There is only one God. There is only one salvation. You and your neighbour sitting in the pew next to you or in the other congregation or, or even broader afield, this is bigger than our church, share the same Spirit of God. Denominations in the end are useful but they're not real divisions. Right? The Baptists and even, dare I say it, the Uniting Church, at least those who are saved in it, and, uh, and the Presbyterians, right? And, and the Chinese Christian Church, right? Just down the road here. And, and the, the Arabic Baptists across the road. All who follow Jesus, all who are given to Him, are one. But here's the thing for us here today. If Jesus paid the blood price for the person sitting next to you, then He has united them to you and you to them. So strive to maintain unity through peace. Now, of course, this has implications for those who are outside the church, doesn't it? If you are somebody who doesn't follow Jesus, well, this says that your way is false. For there is only one Lord, there is only one God and one Spirit and one baptism and one faith. You cannot come to him any other way. Now how is it that we're going to maintain this unity? What is it that each one of us is going to do? Well, have a look at verse 2. I think there's two things in our passage that he teaches us as to what we need to do to maintain it. The first is the particular kind of character we need to have in verse 2. And the second is how we use the gifts that God has given us as we'll see in the rest of the passage. What sort of character are we to have? Verse 2, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Well, let's just ponder those together for a minute. All humility, he says. Pride is the default of the human being. I mean, it's, it's the very essence of sin. The arrogance that says to God, I am God and you are not. I mean, that's, that's almost the definition of sin and every human being outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is their natural state. Such that inevitably, human beings end up being proud in all sorts of things that we shouldn't be. I mean, there's a very easy example in our culture these days, right? Everyone, we, we talk about gay pride. Such a strange notion to be arrogant and proud about something that God says is not right. I tell you what, humility, real humility, comes from knowing that you've been saved. Let me illustrate for you. Uh, I, I used to, in, in, a, in a previous life, uh, get to spend a lot of time at Bondi Beach. It was, it was a glorious couple of years of my life. Uh, ministry was surfing. I mean, it doesn't get much, much better than that. But inevitably, Bondi Beach would attract all sorts of people and there'd always be a gang of young men who obviously took great pride in their appearance. 
They'd be wearing as little clothing as possible and they would be displaying to the world every single last toned muscle that they could. Right? They'd be vying with each other to compete as to who was better at throwing a football or doing flips or whatever. You know, they were just in, in the prime of their youth and arrogant. But actually, more than once it happened that I was watching that same group of young men and they decided to swim. And of course, being proud, arrogant young men who could do anything, they don't need to pay attention to the flags now, do they? We can go wherever we want. I mean, look at us. We can conquer any wave. And more than once, I saw one of those young men being rescued by the lifeguards. Because it turns out that water and rips and the ocean are no respecters of virile beauty. They, <laughs> they're going to do you in. And the change in attitude in those young men as they were just draped on the beach, having been pulled out by slightly even more muscular young men, as it turns out, was astonishing. They'd been humbled. They'd been saved. For all that they thought of themselves, it turned out that in their moment of need, they couldn't save themselves. They'd been rescued by somebody else. Paul puts it in Romans 12, our first reading, he says, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should. To be realistic about ourselves. However important, talented, rich, clever, smart you might be, you are but a humble sinner who is whoever you are only by the grace of God. Now, this isn't about being self-deprecating, okay? This isn't about putting yourself down whenever you can and, and oh, woe is me, I'm so bad or woe is me, I've been picked on so much. You can end up carrying self-deprecation almost like a badge. It becomes its own form of pride, strangely. See, humility isn't about saying, look at me, I am so bad. Humility is about saying, look at Jesus because I am so dependent. It's not I am bad, it is I am dependent. All that I have has been given to me. All that I am is a gift. All that I can be is in someone else's hands. All that I desire even is shaped by him. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul describes it this way. He says, chapter 2 and verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Put their needs first. Now again, we're not talking about random people somewhere else. We're talking about the group of people in this room. We're talking about God's children, your brothers and sisters in Christ. I want good for them, even over good for myself. In all humility, he says, with gentleness. Now, there's a characteristic that we don't often think of as something good and laudable and to be pursued, gentleness. The world loves strength and power. Jesus, what was he? Meek and mild. Now, perhaps it helps us to think about the negatives. What's the opposite of gentleness? Vicious, violent, brutish, seeking revenge, vindictive, bitter, 
hostile, assertive, always looking to retaliate, rather gentleness is friendly, pleasant, kind. If I can put it this way, it's power under control. I had some friends uh, at a previous church who were islanders and uh, they embody gentleness. Have you ever shaken hands with an islander? I mean, these guys are huge, right? Like massive guys. Hands are just fingers the size of sausages, right? And you're going for the handshake and you're kind of bracing for what's going to come. And it's just this little, almost limp-wristed little, tight little hold. It's just like they're afraid that they're going to break your hand. So they just have to be gentle. Actually, that's it. It's not not having power. It's not giving up power. No, humility means that we use our power in gentleness for the good of others. We want to use our strength for good. Patient, he says, bearing with one another in love. Enduring. That's patience. Waiting. Staying faithful and joyful and peaceful and content in adversity. You don't have to be patient when things are good, when you're having fun, when it's easy. That doesn't require patience then. The attitude that never gives in, that will bear every insult, every injury, every persecution, that will suffer unfairness and slander and criticism and hatred and even jealousy and envy. And it will take it all without bitterness or irritation or complaint. Now there's a picture of somebody who pursues unity, of someone who's dedicated to peace. Now of course this doesn't mean that we just let our brother and sister in Christ continue in sin. Okay? Gentleness and, and patience and bearing with one another. All right? we, we've seen that before. Galatians chapter 6, right? you, you who are mature, rebuke them, correct them. In gentleness, bring them back. Matthew chapter 18 from last term, you remember, someone sins against you, this is how to deal with it. Okay? Unity doesn't mean that you have to ignore every difference. This is, I think, where the progressive church has gotten it wrong. They say everybody can come. In fact, the more diverse, the better. And even if the diversity is diversity of sin, well, brilliant. That's great. No. We don't praise sin. We don't bear with... Well, we kind of bear with sin, don't we? We put up with it. But we want to see our brother and sister in Christ pursue godliness. No, so the unity that Jesus has won for us, that we are to pursue at every cost, firstly, we pursue with our character. Humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another. Because what we want, if you jump down to verse 13 in Ephesians, what we are pursuing is a particular goal. Have a look, Ephesians 4 and verse 13. The sort of unity we are after isn't the false unity of the progressive church. It's the true unity in faith. Verse 13, we are living this way until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. You see, what we are aiming for is Christ-likeness. 
It's not a, a made-up unity. It's not something that we just invent or, or that we get to choose what it looks like, what are the criteria and what aren't. What we are pursuing is Christ-likeness. Again, individually and together. The second way that we do it, the first is with our character. The second way is with our God-given diversity. Not diversity that we make up, the diversity that God has brought among us. God has gifted us, as we come back to our start again, so much. He's gifted us salvation, He's gifted us Himself. But on top of that, He has also given each one of us, and I'm talking about each one of you, He has given every single one of us exactly what it is that we individually need to have in order to contribute to the growth of the body. Have a look at verse 7, at the individual gifts that God gives. Grace, he says, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Right, he goes on to quote one of the Psalms to show the picture of Jesus as the ascended king, the victorious king, who in his ascension gives gifts to his people, gives what they need. Now, we have a cultural problem with this verse. A bit of a cultural blind spot. You see, for, for us Westerners at least, and, and for those who aren't of a Western mindset, um, let me educate you on our cultural blind spot for a moment. We are utterly individualistic. We have this notion that the basic unit of humanity is the self. That me, on my own, I genuinely can achieve anything that I need to, and I don't really need anybody else. See, we, we fail to understand the very basic premise in these verses that without each other, we can't reach Christian maturity. We can't reach Christ-likeness. Now, of course, it should be obvious to us, right? What is Christ-likeness? Christ-likeness is to give your life for the good of others. If there's no others... How do you give your life for the good of others? And yet we still have this mindset, the, the Western individualistic mindset, right? As long as I've received my bit and maybe every now and then I'll do something. No, see, God has gifted each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Come back to chapter 3 and have a look at Paul's gift. He's able to um, kind of work it out, define it very clearly. Chapter 3 and verse 7. I was made a servant of this gospel, how? By the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of His power. That's a different use of the word grace. Usually we talk about salvation. Here Paul is talking about a specific task. In fact, verse 8, this grace was given to me, right? This gift was given to me, the least of the saints, to preach to the Gentiles the riches of Christ. So Paul's specific gift for the good of the body was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. As we receive God himself, we get salvation, yes, we get the fruits of the Spirit, yes, we get the, the illumination of the Scriptures, yes, and God gifts us to serve one another. Uh, there, there's a couple of places in the New Testament where it fleshes out this idea. 
uh, Romans chapter 12 that we had our first reading and, and we'll look at that together in a minute. You can also go and look at 1 Corinthians 12 verses 4 to 14. Um, if you're, if you're a, someone's going to go and read this later, or, or 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 to 11, that's the simplest one. 1 Peter 4 says you get gifts of speaking, so speak, or gifts of serving, so serve, and use them all to build up the body. I mean, if 1 Peter 4 is brilliant. Romans chapter 12, right, chapter 12 and verse 4, as we have many parts, there's just one body, and all the parts don't have the same function in the same way we who are many are one body and individually members. Verse 6, according to the grace given to us, again, God's grace, God's gifts to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the portion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, teach. If exhorting, exhort. If giving, well then give with generosity. If leading with diligence. If showing mercy, do it with cheerfulness. Love one another deeply. Outdo one another in showing honour. Serve with what you've been given. Varied, individual, specific gifts for serving and building through which we reach maturity. Now again, let me point out some implications of this. If you are not serving the body of Christ in some way, if you aren't using who God has made you and what he has given you for the good of the body then the body will suffer. It's true. Without you, the rest of us are worse off. Whoever you are, whatever value you consider you have to the body, whatever you think highly or lowly, whether you feel connected or disconnected, part of it, without you, In that sense, if you aren't serving, if you aren't using your gifts, at best, you're dead weight. At, at worst, you're gangrene. <laughs> it's, right, we, we, we will never leave infancy. We will never mature. But the, other, the flip side of the implication is also true, that if you are not being served by your brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and maybe if you're watching online and you're somebody who just thinks gathering with God's people, I mean, you might not be, you've got your circumstances to be there, but how will you ever reach maturity if this is what God has given the body to grow? God has supernaturally equipped you to uniquely contribute to the body's growth towards maturity. you believe that? Now, of course, if you're anything like me, then I start asking questions. Like, well, how am I supposed to know what my gift is? <laughs> how do I, like Paul, had it so clear and so obvious, right? Jesus told him, your job is to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. All right, well, that's easy. Off I go. How, how are we supposed to work it out? And th this is the hole in my theology. This is the bit where I, I, I'm, I'm not sure, to be perfectly honest with you. I'm not sure that the Bible ever tells us. And people try all sorts of things, right? They make these questionnaires and, you know, 53 spiritual gifts, which one is yours? And you can go, like, you know. Why don't you just start with what you're passionate about or what you're good at, what you are resourced to do? 
Why don't you start with just the people around you and then go looking for more people to serve? So often it's born out of the self, self self-confirmed, right? I think this is what I should do and you go and do it and it turns out, yeah. Sometimes not, right? It's got to be affirmed by other people as well. I've known a few who thought, well, this is my particular calling and off they go and, right, and maybe not, right? Let's just a little bit of help. Ask yourself, will it build somebody else up? I mean, that's what we're trying to do, right? We're bodybuilders. Will it help mature into Christ-likeness? Well, then do it. Serve, speak. The risen, triumphant, ascendant Jesus has gifted the individual members of his church with what they need to grow. And it hits our cultural blind spot, doesn't it? Ah, well, I... I attend church, we say. Attend? Why are you attending? What's the point of that? Well, fine, I won't attend church then. That's possibly even worse, right? Um, Now, honestly, it's not about whether you're here or not on a Sunday. I mean, that's such a small view, such a small vision of this life in the church together, right? This is about all of life. But actually, Sundays matter... And I'll tell you why, because in our busy lives, we spend such little time together. That, that, that's, that's really why. The one time in the week where you can put at least 10 minutes into somebody else happens on Sunday. Now, I pray that there's all sorts of times during the week when it's happening way more than the 10 minutes you might get on a Sunday. All right, God has gifted us individually. But you know what? God's also gifted us corporately. He has given the church gifts. Come down to verse 11. God himself, Jesus himself, gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach that unity in the faith, growing into maturity to the full stature. Isn't that interesting? God has gifted people to us. He has given people gifts and he has given gifts of people the evangelists, the teachers. I take it that the apostles and prophets were the foundational ones. Right, chapter 2, verse, uh, where is it? Chapter 2, verse 20, right, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Or chapter 3, verse 5, this is made known, now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. I take it that in, in Ephesians, at least, the apostles and the prophets were those that set the gospel in place So we don't need them anymore. We now have the scriptures and what we have are the evangelists and pastor teachers. The evangelist who takes the gospel to those outside the church and the pastor teacher who takes the gospel to those inside the church. We have the good deposit. And you notice that the body is the one that builds itself but we need these leaders to guide us, to protect us, to feed us, to equip us. Did you notice in verse 12 who it is that does what? Come to verse 12 again. Right, we have these gifts, the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists. What do they do? They equip the saints. And what do the saints do? The work of ministry. To build up the work of Christ. The saints are the ones who minister. Uh, Who are the saints? Yeah, good, good, excellent. Thank you, Jeff. This group of people, he says. 
you. Now, if you ever find yourself, ever find yourself sitting there thinking, oh, I better find a minister to do this job. Why? You do it. You think I'm out of my depth. It ha- happens regularly, right? Um, so, someone, usually this is, this is one of the ways that it happens, right? A, a new person comes to church, perhaps somebody with some problems, right? A bit of a different life story. They meet somebody on the ground that's just after church and the person says, oh, ho- hello, welcome, how can I help you? They talk for about 15 seconds and then go, I'm out of my depth. Come with me, let me take you to a minister, right? Now, why don't you do this next time if that happens to you? Instead of coming to one of us and going, here you go, come to one of us and say, I feel out of my depth. Equip me. So that the next time it happens, I'll be okay. We've we've professionalised ministry. We, We employ ministers. Their job is to do the ministry. Actually, the pastor and teacher is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. If our church's maturity depended on the three of us being able to get done everything that needs to get done, we're not going very far. We're not going to get out of nappies. It's just... God has gifted the church with leaders and teachers who will fan into flame the gifts of the individuals so that we can serve and grow into maturity with this wonderful outcome in verse 14. Then, as we reach this maturity, we will no longer be little children, tossed by the waves, blown around by every wind of teaching. It's a maturity that is arrived at as we think rightly, as we learn to think about God in His ways. No longer tossed around by human cunning with cleverness. But, as we speak the truth in love, we know the truth and we are gentle with each other, then we continue to grow into him who is the head, out of whom the whole body flows. Once again we come to that unity. Hold fast to the truth. For we are, and here's my picture for this week, we are bodybuilders. That's a very young Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, just, just in case you you haven't seen it before. And I don't know that you can see it, the, the picture maybe is a little bit small, right? But you can see on Arnie every single individual muscle. That's the lats just there, I didn't know you could get those big enough to sort of pop out. Apparently he did somehow. The, uh, the, the biceps, he's got to curl his wrist to get the bicep up. The, the now here's the thing about someone like Arnie. United in his goal. His entire body working towards one common goal. Impress the judges, in his case, right? Ours isn't that dissimilar. United in one common goal, to grow into Christ-likeness, that we might display the grace of God. The entire body working together. But also we do it employing the diversity that God has given. Every single muscle, every single organ playing its part. Some are visible, right? The biceps, you can't miss them. Some are invisible. What shape is his spleen in? No idea. Probably a little bit squashed right now, actually. Uh, the, the vacuum pose. <laughs> One body. You know what? I'm so thankful to God for this church. Because in so many ways, 
we get to see it. We are a church that year after year is, we're not perfect, okay? I'm not standing up here saying we've nailed it all, but there really is a deep love, a unity in the gospel, a maturity that sees us thinking rightly, such that we continue to strive towards this maturity in Christ. Partly it's, it's the privilege of being on staff, we get to hear all the little bits that, that flow in, all the web of connections, all the, the good things that people do for each other. We have a spot at staff meeting called Celebrating the Wins. It's never empty. There's always glorious things happening among us. So be encouraged, be of good cheer, because those wins that we celebrate are you and what God does in you and among you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for all the spiritual blessings we have received in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that as you've given us salvation, as you've given us of yourself, so you have given us as a body what we need to grow and you've given us as individuals what we need to participate in that maturing. Father, thank you for the hundreds of ways it happens every single week in love and service, in humility, in kindness. People employing gifts of speaking and gifts of serving. Father, please, in all of this, would you continue to grow us towards maturity? Challenge us with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ where we need to be challenged. That we would live showing the, the powers and the principalities in the heavenly realms, your grace lived out in our lives. Amen.